Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome back to the Lynx Golf Podcast. This is digital editor Al Lunsford with Lynx. And speaking of welcome backs, it's a, a nice welcome here to the podcast again for George Pepper. It's been a while, George. Uh, I know know you've done some traveling. Uh, Can you tell us about your summer? Yeah, well, the the last uh, three weeks have certainly been eventful. Um, We went over to, we took the uh, leap, uh, defied the uh, COVID uh, guidelines a little bit. Well, we didn't break them, but uh, I went over to uh, UK, spent about uh, 10 days, two weeks in uh, St. Andrews at our little flat there and uh, caught up with some friends, uh, played uh, a little bit of golf, and just had a great time. And then we, uh, Libby and I went to Paris for four or five days and had a great time. We enjoyed Paris so much, we've already booked it again for next year. And uh, kind of you know, got a museum pass and did all the touristy things. We've been there uh, before. I actually was lucky enough my, my junior year in college to work as kind of an intern at the Automobile Club of France. And uh, so we had a, a little hotel room not too far from there. And so I did a little bit of reminiscing, but uh, had a great time. It, it was, a, as I say, we sort of took a risk going because, you know, because of the whole COVID situation. But the truth is it's safer over there. They have a higher vaccination rate in France than they do, and in the UK, than here. Uh, the airports were an absolute breeze. The lines were, much shorter than they are on under normal circumstances and uh, no lines for customs or anything like that. And uh, yes, everywhere we went in the UK and Paris, you had to show them your vac- vaccination certificate. Um, but, you know, so just carry it in your wallet and flip it out and they scrutinize it a bit and in you go. And uh, we were, I can't tell you, we must've gone to how many places, half a dozen restaurants in Paris and, it was very seldom that we saw another uh, American, uh, which was kind of nice. As I said, even the Parisian waiters were happy to see us. There have been so few tourists over there. <laughs> so we had a great time. And uh, then I'd done some traveling of another kind just yesterday. Uh, we, uh, my wife and I drove from New York to Charleston. We did it in one day, which was 12 hours and 15 minutes of fun. Somehow I was able to do the whole drive myself, thanks to uh, two coffees and three Red Bulls. So <laughs> here I am, sort of uh, frazzled, but ready to go. So very active. Um, what the Automobile Club of France? You said what? Yeah. What, did you, what did you do there? What is that exactly? Uh, well, it helps French travelers uh, gain access to other ca- countries in Europe. It helps them with cars and whatnot. And my job was it sounded cool but it's actually it was it was awful i actually had a a, i checked off the days um, and i spent probably 60 percent of my day with a stamp a pad you know with a little ink pad and a stamper and then boom 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 boom, literally did that six hours at a time uh just little vouchers for 
visas and whatnot. And occasionally I got to take French people's passports to the consulates of various other European countries, get them validated. Was, those are my big days out. But uh, yeah, it was, uh, it, being in Paris was fun. The job was pretty much a drag. <laughs> so that inspired you to become a golf rider, of course. Yeah, well, anything but stamping passports. Well, while you were at the home of golf and perusing the Eiffel Tower and whatnot, our fall issue of Lynx came out, the 2021 fall issue with a lovely picture of the Sahara Bunker at Baltus Roll on the cover there, an update from Gil Hands on that course uh, is well discussed in the issue. But George, as you've done in the past, uh, and we'll do again here today, um, would love to talk through your column in this issue and, and a couple of other pieces as kind of a preview. Uh, it should have arrived to those of you who subscribe to our print magazine, um, you should have it by now so you can follow along. But um, if you don't, you can always visit our website, www.linksmagazine.com and get your subscription today. George, the, the topic here uh, is one that it's funny because admittedly, you, as you say in the column, it's something that Lynx uh, is guilty of. And that's glorifying uh, golden age architects. We've done quite a bit of that, I know, but this is a, a, a different argument or a different opinion of how we should think about these guys, right? Right, I call it deifying dead guys. <laughs> and I, I am, as I said, this, uh, the first line of the column was curmudgeon alert. I'm about to go on a major rant uh, about something that likely will be of only marginal interest to you and may even cause you some annoyance. So this may be another, a good time to look at anything else in the issue. Uh, this has been a bugaboo of mine for years now. And it, I decided to write about it because one of the uh, pieces in this issue is about uh, people, the architects whose careers uh, have been built in many cases on uh, redoing golf courses of these golden age architects. And um, it sort of bothered me that that piece had to be written, that there is an entire generation of architects living off the supposed, not failures, but uh, outdatedness of their predecessors. And, and so I asked the question, you know, we, we deify these guys from the golden age, roughly the first third of 20th century, uh, and you know who you're talking, we're talking about Donald Ross and Alistair McKenzie, Colt, Tillinghast, Rayner, the rest of them. And if you look at the list of the top 100 courses, any, any such list, probably over 50% of them, even today, are these guys who have been dead for between 30, 50 years. And um, I asked the question, were these really, these guys really that surpassingly brilliant? Were they any better? or even as good as the best architects today. And I, I don't think they were. And I, I can give you a couple of reasons I feel that way. Uh, one is basically they were all neophytes. They did not particularly grow up wanting to be golf course architects because there were no such thing as golf course architects. These were guys who were doing something else and then said, well, maybe I'll give this a shot. I mean, in the case of uh, Ross, he was a golf pro. McKenzie was a doctor. Harry Colt was a lawyer. Tillinghast was, was a magazine editor. Imagine that. And Seth Rainer was an engineer. 
and so they were kind of drawn into this. Um, and the truth is they were winging it. Uh, before these guys came around, uh, most of the golf courses were kind of natural affairs that grew up on the, the coastline of the UK. And what these guys were doing was helping to literally spread the, uh, the gospel, uh, taking it inland. And whereas, of course, the Lynx courses were on barren, treeless, kind of fast-running uh, fields, now these guys are trying to do it on not so barren, very heavily tree-clad, kind of sometimes spongy inland terrain. And so they were, they were adjusting. Um, so I think some of their courses were better than others. Um, and, and the best of them were, were very good indeed. They fit beautifully into the natural settings and, and they did show a certain amount of artistry and creativity. But I, I think another thing these guys get uh, credit for is being the first minimalist. And I take great issue with that. I mean, Ross and Mackenzie and Tilling, yes, they, they weren't interested in, in minimalism. They weren't focusing on preserving the land or protecting the environment or, you know, keeping a sustainable golf course. They just didn't have bulldozers. I mean, that's, they did minimalist because they could, all they could do was a minimal uh, earth movement. So um, I think they get some false credit. Tom Doak once said, the best architects are the guys who get the, uh, the best clients. And it occurs to me, maybe those are the ones that we should be deifying. Those uh, sort of rich guys with deep pockets and uh, strong feelings that they, they wanted a top class golf course. And you know, I gave example, I think instead of uh, Ross, it might've been Dick Tufts at Pinders instead of Mackenzie, maybe Clifford Roberts at uh, Augusta National, or instead of uh, Colt, maybe George Crump at Pine Valley, even Robert Moses instead of Tillinghast at Beth, Beth Page. Those were maybe the real heroes. But uh, the truth is, if, if, you, if you look back 50 years ago uh, and were to ask a member of the average golf course, any golf course in the U.S., who's your golf course architect? Any club. I think you'd be hard pressed to find anybody who could tell you the name of the person who had designed the course that he or she had been playing. And so how did this all change? Well, I think it's generally agreed that Frank Hannigan had a lot to do with it. Frank Hannigan uh, worked for the USGA. He uh, became executive director of the USGA, but he also happened to be a terrific uh, writer. He had a career as a sports writer, I believe, before he got to the USGA. And back in 1974, he wrote a piece, a 10,000 word piece for the USGA's golf journal on Tillinghast, because Tillinghast that year, his courses were going to host four major championships, including the US Open. And he did this uh, absolutely compelling piece on Tillinghast, who happened to be quite a character. He dubbed it uh, Tillinghast's Golf's Forgotten Genius. And so compelling was that piece that I think it single-handedly ignited an interest in these golden age architects, uncovered them, really resuscitated. And what happened, of course, is that uh, you know, people started talking about them. They started, the names of the uh, architects started getting mentioned on uh, the telecasts of the, the tournaments. And people started writing more and more about them. And uh, maybe most of all, the members of the club started digging into their archives, hoping they could unearth somebody that was relatively important or at least kind of interesting. So this all spawned this 
mania, this fixation with the golden age architects. As I said, you know, many a, a, a theretofore undistinguished 6,500 yards suddenly became known as a quote unquote, great old Donald Ross course. And, and people, entire groups of people started to uh, boast about their familiarity with McKenzie bunkers or McDonald templates or Rainer Greens. And it all got to be kind of, uh, I don't know, pretentious. And I, I, said, I was as much guilty of this as any, and as I said, you know, let me be this mea culpa. My name is George and I'm an archaeologist. I do this stuff too. I mean, when, uh, when Hannigan's piece came out, the USGA library had 6,000 volumes in it and there were only two books on golf course architecture. So that's less than 50 years ago that came out. Now they're over 100. That's what's happened here. And an, an entire societies have been formed around the worship of uh, Tillinghast and Ross and McKenzie, Donald, all of those guys, and a bunch of lesser lights as well. And as you know, there's a, a very uh, popular website, golfclubatlas.com, where every day dozens of these ARCA nerds uh, converge and talk about, among other things, the golden age golf courses. So, I mean, it's... Uh, Links has been as guilty as you pointed out as anyone. We revere golf course, great golf courses every issue. And when we celebrated our 25th anniversary a few years ago, we actually did a list of the top 25 architects in history. And of course, 15 of them were, including the top four, were golden ages. So, you know, I'm sure people, I, I, I'm expecting some backlash particularly from the kind of the golf club, uh, the golf club Atlas group, but uh, so far so good. In fact, I, I've gotten, uh, gotten a couple of nice emails. One of which was from David McClay Kidd, uh, the architect of Bandon Dunes among many others, Mammoth Dunes, Bandon Dunes to Mammoth Dunes and a lot in between, one of which was the castle course. And when I lived in St. Andrews, I gave that course and not very good review. And he and I have had an ongoing sort of snicker about it ever since and he wrote to me and said uh, I enjoyed your uh, piece on the uh, deifying the dead architects and he said I agree with you that uh, if you've been dead long enough uh, and had a reasonable reputation re reputation is bound to double or triple and said something like that he said it gives me some sort of uh, encouragement though that maybe when I die the, they'll think the, the uh, castle course was an absolute classic. <laughs> uh, at least yeah, I, I didn't get a brick bat thrown at me there. But um, anyway, I think uh, you can make too much of this. Um, but I just wanted to point out, I, I think we've all kind of uh, gotten a little bit too in love with this, this notion. I think if, if these guys, if Ross and Tellinghouse and the rest of them could see what's going on, they'd have a pretty good chuckle. Do you recall reading Frank Hannigan's piece in Golf Journal and, and what you was know, it? I'd say it's almost 50 years ago. Yeah, I, I, I looked at it, oh, probably 20 years ago again, and it was exhaustive and yet extremely readable. And, you know, Tillinghast had quite a, a career. He was, uh, both as an individual and as an architect, he was, uh, he was a bit of a philanderer, as I recall, among other things. But, uh, you know, there's guys, there were some real characters in those days. And I think Frank picked a good guy to start with. Yeah. 
Well, like you said too, um, it, how often do you go out and search a golf course and, and you see it's a, it's a Seth Rayner design. It's a, a great Donald Ross course, like you said, and, and it could be as nondescript as any course you've ever seen. But if you have a tie to one of these guys, it becomes an instant uh, marketing plus. And, and you'll see people will, will attach to that. Yeah. And, you know, it's not a bad thing. I think it saved a lot of uh, golf clubs and golf courses. Uh, and it's given these guys who they do deserve credit. There's no question. They, they, their best work was excellent, wonderful, worthy of the delayed recognition it's getting. As I say, I, I have more problem with these guys at clubs who are trotting around posing. <laughs> right. And it's, it's funny to think of the idea of, of one of the golden agers being a minimalist as they go about with shovels in the dirt. I mean, how, how did those guys, without the use of the technology we have de these days, do you know like how they went about big earth moving projects? If they had horses, they had horses, pull plows. That's about the best they could do. That was a big deal. Other than that, it was just, you know, picks and shovels, and they just didn't move a whole lot of dirt. They, for the most part, worked with what they had. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was pretty easy with links courses. There were no trees to chop down. But, um, yeah, those the early guys who brought it inland had much more of a challenge. Absolutely brilliant in the fact that they could not possibly move a lot of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe one day uh, people will look back at this podcast and say that was a, a George Pepper classic. Yeah, it was a rant. 50 years down the road. <laughs> um, the reputation of this podcast is only going up. Yeah, that's right. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Uh, another piece that you speaking back to the, the home of golf and, and St. Andrews, we, we've had this series in 2021. That's going to continue into next year, um, with Joe Passoff, uh, called Paragon, uh, in which we're identifying the, the characteristics that, that make golf courses great and good, you know, water cooler conversation topics that, uh, why is this, does this course stick out so much more um, above the rest? And, and what are those reasons? So we're trying to identify these qualities. Maybe I've explained it, you know, not well, or, or maybe that's an okay description, but um, we've had golf's meanest greens we covered. We covered the ultimate test of patience. Uh, the issue before this one was the best courses you can play at twilight, Royal Dornick topped that list. And the topic of this one was kind of tied into Ryder Cup season. We were looking into or had Joe look into what he would consider to be the ultimate or best match play venue in the world. His decision was St. Andrews exhibited the best match play qualities. There's no one maybe living, George, that has played as much at St. Andrews as yourself. 
or knows the course as well as you do. No, 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 no. That's a little bit breathless. Then. <laughs> there are thousands of people who have played St. Andrews more than I have, but thank you for the misplaced compliment. Uh, but, well, yeah, I must say, I didn't see this. And the moment I saw Joe had selected the old course, I said, of course. You know, if you want my feeling about it, I think the old course, uh, certainly on a calm day, has lost its ability to challenge the greatest players in the world in a 72-hole stroke play tournament. But as a match play venue, it, it is absolutely, I can't imagine another, certainly championship, quote-unquote, golf course, it's equal. Um, why? Well... Imagine you're Bryson DeChambeau and you can carry your ball 350 yards off the tee. The truth is, under certain circumstances, every par four on the old course is drivable. Every par four on the old course is drivable. And yes, that includes 17, which has been driven, not just once or either. If you catch that dead downwind, you can fly the ball probably, well, 350 yards, and that will take you within probably 30, 40 yards of the green. And then the wind and the turf will conspire to allow you to roll up onto that uh, surface. So, and it, it is parenthetically, I live in anticipation of what Bryson might do at the first hole in the open. I mean, if that's downwind, He's going to have to hit a five iron or he can hit a three wood a mile in the air. And if it doesn't land in the Swoken Burn, it will either land on the green or bounce on with the first bounce. And I, I'm sure he's doing already doing the, the mathematical calculations on the chances of his going in there. And if he goes in the burn, what are the chances of his getting up and down versus if he drives it on the green, what are the chances of his two putting making a three? So I'd love to know what's going through his mind there. Um, but it's all kind of a long preamble that with holes like that, uh, where you can get very close to the green, even mere mortals can drive it very close under downwind situations. And yes, not all holes are downwind on the same day. I'm saying under certain circumstances, every hole is reachable. But in a given day, half, half of them may be into the wind, half of them may be the other way. Um, but each of the two par fours very reachable in two. Uh, again, one would be downwind, one the other, but that only adds to it. These are also holes where if you make a mistake, uh, you can be in the face of a pot bunker and the hole's over. So um, it's just, it's a great thinking man's golf course. And uh, to, to, to do that thinking while you're watching someone else doing the same sort of thinking is just a, a fascinating exercise and makes for, you know, it's just, it, it's a crime that the Ryder Cup has never been played at the old course. And I suspect it never will be it just, it's, uh, they're going to go for the big money places like Whistling Straits. And I don't know that the Lynx Trust is going to give up the course another week like that. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's just, it, it is the absolutely perfect uh, match play course. And uh, I'd love to see it happen. 
And then we had a couple of others. The, I, I have not played it. My, I'm, I'm a little jealous of my son who has now played it. <laughs> but I had Ohupi, which uh, I believe has like 22 holes and, and some of them are you know, basically they're rated on the, even on the scorecard, I think, well, if there is a scorecard, but they, they, they call them par three, three and a half. 3.5, 4.5, 5.5. How cool is that? Um, and uh, yeah, according to my son, Scott, he said, it's a, yeah, it's a very, very cool course and uh, encourages boldness and yet uh, you better be real careful. And Austin Country Club, I don't know that this is where the PGA Tour match play event uh, has been played mm -hmm. the last several years. I'm sure some of the that thinking went into the choice of the uh, course, but it is, yeah, it's just perfect. It has these uh, bunch of uh, short par fours that, yeah, they're drivable, but you have to fly at 300 yards of water to an almost island green, that type of hole. And then the last one we had is uh, Bandit Dunes where, where uh, they had the uh, US Amateur uh, last year, I guess. Yeah. And yeah, that, the, I mean, the winner of that, tournament was yeah, banned in doing it really just showed off it's, it's, it's similar to a links course to st andrews you can you're encouraged to you know turn your shoulders and let it rip because uh, there's not a lot of trees or water to worry about but uh, there are plenty of bunkers and high rough and fast greens to make it interesting of course the uh, usga announced relatively recently that bandon would host a bunch of amateur match play events over the course of the next 20, 25 years, um, effectively making it the home of amateur golf. Um, so you'll see a lot of match play at that venue. Um, That's smart. Yeah. And, and yeah, I, I wanted to, to read a, uh, the, the quote from tiger about the old course in here is really good um, to kind of give people an idea of what players, how, how things can, really change uh tiger said in 2015 i heard people say that you can drive nine with a certain wind you can drive 10 you can drive 12 i can't touch any of those holes what are they talking about then the wind switches and it's a totally different golf course then you go what are these bunkers here for they're not even close to being in play the wind switches and oh my god they are that's the genius of this place that's right i mean i remember uh Jerry Pate telling me a story when he was a, a, a collegiate player, they had a tournament there, it might have been the Arnold Palmer Collegiate Tournament. And Pate said it was so windy, he looked out at the wind gauge on the side of the RNA clubhouse and it said 60 miles an hour. He said a good percentage of the field didn't even show up, but the wind wasn't so horrible that the balls were running along on greens. So he said, I went out and played. And it was straight into their face on this first hole that I'm saying Bryson can drive. He said, I hit a driver and a three wood and I was short of the green. Now that's a, you know, US Open caliber player hits a driver three wood, 340 yards. <laughs> and then, then on the 14th, he said, coming back the absolute opposite direction, I hit a driver wedge over the green. Two shots, a driver wedge over 550 yards. So, yep, that's what the wind does. And that's really the only defense the old course has these days against the long-hitting PGA Tour players. 
Is there trouble long at the first hole there? Like what's preventing? Yeah, right? yeah there, are two, there are two golden rules when you play the old course. Take one club more at the first hole. I'm uh, sorry, yeah, one club more in the first hole and one club less than you think on the 17th hole because you don't want to go over. There is trouble in back of 17. There's a wall, there's a road, and an impossible shot awaits you. Um, yeah, but the first hole, first of all, it's a pretty deep green. It's probably 60, 70, 80 feet deep. And it's just kind of heavyish rough. You, you really would have to hit a horrendous skull to get it into some unplayable line. Do you know um, of St. Andrews, do, do they host much match play? I mean, for, for members or locals, is there a well, lot? Well, they host, uh, yeah, hundreds of rounds of match play every day. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's just, you know, the hacks like you and me, or at least like me. But no, I, I, they don't, I, to my knowledge, there's no annual major match play tournament. The RNA uh, every uh, fall has takes it over for uh, takes over for a week. It's called the Jubilee Vase, and that's just restricted to RNA members. But it is 256 guys start at the beginning of the week, and they get down to two guys who play off for uh, the prize. So a bunch of matches go on there. Got it. Well, maybe one day uh, we'll get lucky and and the stars will align and St. Andrews will be given the Ryder Cup, but for now we're not going to hold our breath. Right. The last piece in here I, I wanted you to touch on, but mostly because you told me you had a, a fast or a, a good story uh, from your travels was uh, a piece on golf in the Netherlands. Uh, yeah. David uh, for us. This is a great piece by our friend David Smith. And uh, he, he, uh, uh, brought back some memories for, for me. I did a book, I'm trying to remember, yeah, I think it was 2010 with a good friend of mine, Malcolm Campbell, uh, called True Links, in which we endeavored to count the number of bona fide links courses in the world. And I often ask people, how many do you think there are? And they said, I don't know, 4,000? No, there's by our count, I believe we came up with 264 or 276. I think it was 264. And um, as we went into it, Malcolm and I, more he than I, had played and were knowledgeable about the ones in the UK, which account for probably 80 to 90% of the world's links courses. But we weren't super sure what existed out with the UK. So uh, we kind of split up the rest of the world, knowing we weren't going to have to go too far. There are no uh, links courses in Guam and that kind of thing. Uh, but we did go, I went to Australia and I went to Europe. And he went to South Africa and looked around Canada and whatnot. And my trip to Europe was a whirlwind venture. Um, interestingly enough, the pieces, the golf courses that David DeSmith writes about, um, in the, are just, um, I would say an hour and a half plane flight from Edinburgh. They're on exactly the same latitude. If you could swim straight across the North Sea from Edinburgh, you'd uh, be pretty well right in the, the heart of this, this trip I took. And I started over in, uh, in Amsterdam. And I think I did this all in a week or eight days at the most. I went from Amsterdam, Denmark, uh, Germany, uh, the Netherlands, uh, Belgium, 
I, I also stopped in France and uh, there might have been, oh, Sweden, ended up in Sweden. I found uh, a couple of them that I didn't think were links and I've gotten scolded by their, <laughs> their fans since. Uh, found a couple of that no one really had heard of. There's one in France by the name of, uh, what is it called again? Granville, Granville, basically. A beautiful course, uh, big high bluffs and, and a, a true links uh, down on the coast of Brittany in France. And, um, and I found the three, of course, very well-known ones that, uh, that David talks about, basically the Hague, uh, Nordvike and uh, Kenimer. Uh, the one I really liked uh, was, is the one people most infrequently like is, is Nordvike. It's kind of a, almost a fairy tale thing. You, you start along the sea and then suddenly you go into this Hansel and Gretel-like woodland for about five or six holes where you would have no idea you're anywhere near uh, an ocean and then you come out of it and you're back feeling the the sea breeze on your cheek again. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, I would recommend, if, you know, anybody who's been to the UK a few times and wants to get a feel for uh, other links, uh, certainly if you're going to Europe, Netherlands is the place, place to start. Uh, because principally because of those first three, and there are a couple of other good ones as well. Uh, Sweden, has a couple of good golf courses in uh, Fosterbow and Jungheusen. Um, there's really only one I found in Germany. And oddly enough, it was designed in 2008, but it's, it's a great little golf course uh, called Budersand. Um, and, you know, it's just, it, they're all within probably a thousand miles in these six, seven, eight countries, uh, but they're all uh, basically in the same sort of uh, terrain that the courses on the, uh, well, they share the, uh, the North Sea, many of them, uh, with the uh, courses in, in Northeastern Scotland. Yeah, as David says, and, and maybe this article will give the impression, um, particularly looking uh, with COVID delays and, and the anticipation of the 150th open at St. Andrews, tea times in the UK and Ireland are going to be pretty sparse uh, and hard to come by. So if someone's looking for an option, uh, Holland might be a good one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are other allures as well. You can start in Amsterdam and have a have an Amsterdam good time there for a couple <laughs> of days. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, as I say, Sweden is a pretty cool place too, and it's not far. None of these courses is more than, you know, couple hours from one another, particularly the three in, in the Netherlands. You, you could probably play all three of them one day if you wanted to. So, yeah, that's, I'm glad we were able to do this piece. Uh, looking back at your your book that you were there uh, on assignment for, do you recall how many uh, courses you identified as true links across? I think it was 264. It's either 276 or 264. I should know the number, but my memory is poor. And uh, yeah, I, it's, uh, it was 10 years ago. But yeah, it was, it was really a, a fun project. Of course, the, the thing is def defining what is a links course, and I'm not even going to get into that. Everybody has a slightly different view of that. But uh, 
we, we only found at that time, we found nine holes up in, the, in Cape Cod, the Truro links. And I'm not sure whether one of the, uh, I think we probably Bend and Dunes was in place at that point. And now I haven't been, well, I, I've seen old McDonald. I would say that's absolutely probably Pacific Dunes as well. Uh, the new links, the sort of modern links. And we, di we divided them into, you know, they're probably, I don't know, 20 modern links. And yet it, it has to be in a certain climate. You don't find links courses, as they say, in the Southern hemisphere for the most part. And although there is one in South Africa called Humewood um, and a couple in uh, Australia, not the Sandbelt courses, uh, Royal Melbourne and Kingston Heath and the like, those are Sandbelt courses. Mm -hmm. um, but there, we found a couple down there and in fact, more in New Zealand than in Australia. Oh. It was a fun exercise. Yeah. Was there a particular country maybe that uh, you found one you, you least expected to find one in? Yeah, well, as I say, Germany has just the one. Um, no, I would say, again, most of them, I think there are 88 or something like that in Scotland and 50 some in England and Wales had a fair number. Ireland had a fair number. So, um, yeah, and, and a, just a half dozen, the dozen I'm talking about in Northern Europe. Um, it was, it was, it was fun. I'm just, and there have been, a, it's, it was instantly out of date because they started building. Sure. sure. <laughs> of course, it's, I think it's probably up to, well, Malcolm, in fact, had a hand himself in, in uh, Dumbarney links, which is, you know, which has been heralded in the last couple of years. And, uh, Clive Clark did a wonderful design there. And that's the, the newest links in the St. Andrews or Scotland area. And they're still, finding you know it's more it's mostly a matter of finding available permitted land uh it's near the sea and that's hard to do mm -hmm. uh maybe that's well while where we'll end here you know what what are the restrictions there why why is it so hard to build a lynx course in the uk well yeah again it's, it's now, getting access to the land but yeah it um I think Faldo has tried to, to get one going for a while. Corin Crenshaw is Cool Links, isn't that the one? That, yeah. uh, that was in gestation for a while and it's, it's backed off. And, uh, and I don't think it's going to get any easier um, with the environmental sensitivities being what they are. Um, it's probably easier to find it in kind of out of the way um, places as well, I can call them. Oregon and the Pacific Northwest necessarily out of the way, but uh, if anybody knows where they are, I suspect Mike Kaiser and his family uh, have surveyed the planet pretty well and, and aren't afraid to uh, build courses uh, where they aren't exactly easily accessible. So yeah. I, if there are gonna be new ones, they, they'll find them. Right. Well, you mentioned out of the way. I mean, we, when uh, Jack, our publisher and I went to Bandon, we calculated it would have taken, uh, we could have gone to Scotland, played the old course and been having a beer in a pub nearby by the time we actually got to Bandon from South Carolina. Yeah. It, it took about 22 and a half hours to get oh there. Oh my God. Yeah, that, that reminds me of something we did at Golf Magazine 
on a Saturday in the middle of the summer, okay? One of them, they both left for Manhattan. One of them drove to Beth Page on Long Island and got in the queue to play the black course. The other went to uh, JFK and flew to Bermuda and played, I think it was mid-ocean. And the idea was I would await for them at a restaurant, a bar, I think it was a golf bar restaurant in Manhattan and see who got back first. And of course, the guy who went to Bermuda got back first. Wow. A couple hours to get down there. Of course, we had it all set up. We had the chauffeur, we zoomed him to the course. He played the course in two hours, zoomed him back, commercial flight though. And he got, he beat the Beth Page guy by 20 minutes. And it was a cool article. You know, we had it with little clock faces and who's doing what, when. But yeah, the guy who played uh, Beth Page, I think it took him five and a half hours and the traffic coming back. And it was just, it was crazy. You tie one hand behind his back just to make yeah, sure he exactly. didn't make it in time. The weird things we do in this game. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks again, George, for uh, joining me again here. And if you, uh, you have that fall issue flip through let us know what your favorite piece was hopefully you find something new from it i guarantee you you will um and until next time george maybe the the next issue coming up here in the winter of 22 do you have an idea of what your your column will be next time no happily i don't <laughs> oh good <laughs> it will be a surprise all right it'll be a surprise to everyone absolutely awesome all right. Well, cheers. All right. Good talking to you. Al. You too. Cool.